today, we're in Ephesians 3, 14 through 20, which is page 918 in the Pew Bible. Ephesians 3, 14 through 20. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. morning, church. Last fall, 2023, I was able to go to a prayer retreat in Wisconsin, and the organizers of this prayer retreat emphasized growing in the love of God. And I have to admit, when I first heard that that was one of the focuses, I had an inward heart eye roll. Not because I, didn't, I don't believe the love of God for me, but somewhere along the lines, line, I subtly fell into the lie that I kind of tapped out the love of God. You know, like the love of God, that's what we teach little kids downstairs. The love of God, everyone knows it. Yeah, Jesus loves you. Now let's talk about something deeper. Let's go into the, some red meat. Let's move beyond the love of God. Now, I would have never in my wildest dreams articulated that, but suddenly I believed that. There was a disconnect of what my theology said and what my heart actually believed. I think some of you here could relate. At some point, you heard of the love of God. Maybe you first became a Christian and you were flooded with the love of God. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is the love I've been searching for my whole life. And then somewhere along the line, you got callous, got comfortable, got casual, familiar with the love of God. And now you've tried to move on to deeper things, more important things like than love. And I was, while I was on this retreat, God revealed how shallow my understanding of his love was still. He encountered, I encountered the love of God in a fresh new way. My heart was flooded. I forgot how deep the Father's love was for me, how vast beyond all measure, and my heart was set ablaze afresh by the love of God. And that's my hope and prayer for you this morning, that God would flood your heart with the love of God by the Holy Spirit. We've been on this series called Encountering God, going through the attributes of God and how we relate and encounter those realities. And we have quoted over and over again this famous quote from The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It's on the screen. It says this, what you think about God in the innermost part of your heart is the most important thing about you. So that over and over again, but there's another side of that coin. Let me say this to you. The other most important thing about your life 
is what you think God thinks about you. Do you hear that? It's really important to know what you actually think about God. And it's also extremely important what you actually believe in your heart of hearts, God thinks about you. So this morning, we're going to continue this series focusing on the love of God. Now, depending on what church tradition you grew up in, some groups in Christianity fear emphasizing the love of God. They see how some people talk about the love of God and end up abusing the love of God. It gives them a license to sin. Oh, because God just loves me. I can just sin and grace abounds. Or in the focus of the love of God, they neglect other matters in Scripture, the full counsel of God. They they can ignore holiness or sovereignty and other truths about God and from the Scriptures. And so some circles in Christianity have seen those abuses and the neglect and said, Let's not go there. Yeah, yeah, the love of God is real, but let's not focus on that lest people take advantage of the love of God. And let me just be very clear. The love of God does not create those problems. It's understanding, misunderstanding the love of God. See, the problem with someone who has a license to sin is that they actually don't understand the love of God. They don't actually understand what the Bible teaches, the multifaceted beautiful love of God is. And so your greatest need, my greatest need is not to know less of the love of God and focus on other doctrines, but actually to know the love of God like you've never known it before. You need to know the love of God. If you want to go deep, if you want to be mature, you need to know the love of God. It's not something you just graduate from, but grow deeper into like deep waters. But to understand the love of God, we need to go back two weeks ago, I preached on the Trinity of God, that God is triune. It's one of the most important sermons I've ever preached in my life. I'm not saying it's the most important sermon you'll ever hear in your life, but that topic is one of the most important sermons you could ever know. So if you haven't listened to it, please go back. Please catch everyone in the series if you missed any. But hopefully, I made a good argument from Scripture that God has revealed himself as one being, but in three persons. And because that God is triune, because God is triune, it makes the gospel possible and it makes the gospel sweet. One of the points I try to highlight over and over again, that if God was not triune, that he was alone, single, then why in the world would he create the world? What motivation would a single, solitary, lonely God have in creating this world? Maybe he needed to create you to be entertained. Or maybe he needed you to make him feel better about himself, to worship him. Or maybe he needed a bunch of slaves to do his bidding. See, the Bible tells us something extraordinary and teaches us something mysterious but true about the nature of God. And when you understand that, it begins to help you understand why he would create us. 1 John 4, 8 I'm just starting from the second half. If you're interested in learning more about 1 John, we preached a whole series on it, so I'm skipping some context. Check out that sermon on the website. But 1 John 4.8 on the screen, just this one isolated phrase many of you are familiar with, but none of us know fully. God is love. God is love. Who can you say that of? Like, think about you right now, insert your name. 
Sam is love, and love is Sam. Does that make any sense? Just ask my wife, right? That is absurd. Sam does love sometimes, but you couldn't say Sam is essentially love. You look up the definition of Sam, you can say also known as love, right? No, it just doesn't compute if you know me, right? God is love, the only being that that is true of. Yes, God loves, but he doesn't just love, he loves because he is love. It is his nature. But it couldn't be forever his nature if he wasn't triune, if he didn't have others to love him. He would only, he wouldn't be eternally loving, but became loving at one point. And so what we see is that God is the only being in the universe that has always existed, is three in one, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in this loving community, they perfectly and mutually loved each other. And so God has always been, listen, others-oriented before the creation of the world. God has always been others-oriented, not self-oriented, but others-oriented. And you do not have that unless God is triune. And so the loving community of God overflowed, abounding in love, overflowed into creating us in the world. Not out of deficit, not out of need, not out of compulsion, but out of overflow. And as I shared in the previous previous sermon, that this love is a never-ending fountain cascading into each other, overflowing into the world. And it's not like the love of some of us. See, some of us grew up in bigger families, and you felt, as a kid, the more kids were added to the family, the less love there was for you. Or if you had a kid in your family who had special needs, or there was an adoption, one of the challenges is because your parents, even if they tried hard, are finite, don't have inexhaustible, never-ending fountain kind of love. There was only so much love that could go around. It is a fallacy to believe that there's infinite love and you could have 30 kids and you can love them all equally the same and with the attention they each need. We are finite. And some of you grew up with that. And to let let your heart know this, God's love is not like our love where there's a limitation, there's a zero-sum game. So if if, if God starts to love you, you, oh, there's a little less from you. And then if he adds a bunch of baptisms, all of a sudden we all like lose a little love. God's love is an inexhaustible fountain that we can't. It's like taking a straw to the Pacific Ocean. You can't suck it all in no matter how many people join you. That's the love of God. If God is love, then he is also the source of all love. If God is the source of love, then he is the definer of love. Our worldly love, our cultural love does not define God, but God actually tells us what love is. See, I've said this. Often people will say this. If God is a God of love, he would do blank. Or if God was a God of love, he would never do blank. But who are you to tell God how he should love and what love is? See, the created creation doesn't look to the creator and tell creator you tell, I tell you what God, what love is. It's actually the reverse. So I want us to look at the word, look at the Bible, 
as God has revealed himself to be, how he's revealed love to be. One of the challenges, though, is that the Bible explains the love of God in different words, in different themes, and so you can't just look for the word love. You have to look at other realities, and that's what I hope to try to do. We're going to look at eight facets of God's love this morning. There's more, but eight, and take like a diamond and turn it and see more glories and beauties of the love of God. Some of them that will be intuitive, that you'll be like, yeah, that makes sense, and others you would say, how is that part of the love of God? But it is. Each one I'm going to fly through and not give the time. Each are worthy of multiple books. So just please know that just because I highlight it doesn't mean that we are even touching the surface. And that's good news. There's so much more love to go around, so much more love to dive into. So the first facet, we talked about this in First John series, is agape. Would you guys say agape with me? Agape. The love of God is agape love. To understand this facet of love, we need to first compare it to the most common kind of love in the world, and that's response love. Response love. That's the most common love in the world. Response love is love that is in response to something true about someone or something. For example, I love her because she is beautiful. So there's something true about that woman She is lovely, she is beautiful, and therefore, she elicits love in return. I'm responding to something true about her. Does that make sense? There's also other kinds of love that are response love. For example, I love Eden because she's my daughter. In this case, the love is not based on some characteristic, but because she is my child, There is something true about her in that she's my child, and therefore it elicits love for her. We typically love because of something true about others. But here is where God's love is so radically different. Let me share with you a longer quote from Heath Lambert. He has a book called The Great Love of God, which I recommend. It's going to be on the screen. It says this. The love of every other person for you is based on something about you. This is not the way God loves. Everyone else loves, loves you because of something true about you. God loves you because of something true about him. It is God's nature to love. Nothing you have ever done or ever could do will make God love you. He loves you because of who he is, not who you are. God's love overflows from the fact that he is God. Love is who God is and what God does. God does not love you because you matter. You matter because God loves you. Woo! Only some of you got that. There's so much there. This is so hard for us to fathom because everything in our culture and everything in our family experience says the opposite. We cannot fathom love that's not tied with a because. I've told you this story many times. I was once part of this ministry, and on people's birthday, they would sit in this circle, and we would all circle around them, and we would say, I love you because. And that is, sounds sweet, but actually extremely terrible for that person, <laughs> because whatever you attach that because demands them to continue that because for you to continue to love them. I love you because you're funny. Oh, dang. Now I need to be funny. Stay funny. Right? But God's love for us is not attached to any because from us. 
I shared this back in 1 John, agape love from David Allen. Agape love comes first. It creates value in its object, whether there is any intrinsic value there or not. The sun shines on the earth, not because the earth is the earth, but because the sun is the sun. God loves me because he is he, not because I am I. What love is this? We know of no love like this. It's beyond our comprehension, beyond our categories. And this is not just God unconditionally loving neutral people who just don't do bad or don't do good, but he actually loves people who give them, gives him every reason not to love them. Look at Romans 5, 6 through 8. Would you read this out loud? Slowly, you see, at just the right time, God loves you with an agape love. So it's not based about what is true about you, but what's true about him. The next one, facet of God's love. God's love is distinguishing. The love of God is distinguishing. What in the world do you mean by that? Well, D.A. Carson, he wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. What a name, huh? He helped me understand this a little more. Let me summarize him. Does God really love everyone and everything exactly the same way? Does he love snakes just like he loves Mother Teresa? Or does he love Hitler just as much as he loves mountains? If God loves everything the same way, does he really love anything at all? You see where he's getting at that? Carson's point is that God's love is able to distinguish between things and certain people. Yes, in one sense, God does love everything and everyone. But scripture makes it abundantly clear that he has special love for his people. That is different, distinct than those who are not his people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. Would you read this out loud? It's so good. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God, all the people on earth. And choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God chose to love Israel, his people, differently than all other peoples. You can go to other verses in the Bible that talks about God's love generally for the world and creation, but let me ask you this. Why did God choose to love Israel as he did? Because they were great? Because they were super moral or impressive? Nope. Not because of them, but because of him. 
He just chose to love them. He loves all people in one way, but he loves his people in a distinct way. God's love is a distinguishing love, but lest you feel like God will one day just decide to love you and one day decide not to, let me encourage you with the next facet of God's love. God's love is chesed. Would you say that with me with a little guttural? Chesed. Chesed. So Psalm 103, verse 8. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That word steadfast love is the word translated from the Hebrew word chesed. It's about 250 times in the Old Testament everywhere, and it's very hard to translate. If you look at your Bible, it will say many different things. Sometimes it says loyal love, loving kindness, mercy, and many more. And the reason why is because God's chesed is so much further than our categories in our language. And so the only way you can understand it is like adding a lot of modifiers and lots of different words. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says it like this. Chesed is a kind of love you can depend on. When we long for love, what we are really longing for is chesed. Affection can come and go, and it doesn't satisfy our innate need to be loved without condition. What we really want is a loyal love, loyal affection, not driven by strict or begrudging obligation, but by deep compassion. God is abounding in chesed. Remember, he's not limited by his love. He's got a lot of it. More where that came from. This love, it's a loyal love, a love that is deeply committed to his people despite all of their reasons to give him not to be. This is good news because many of us here have been let down royally by loved ones. People who fickly loved us, people who betrayed us, people who are imperfect and wavering in their love for us, our family members, our friends, maybe ex-spouses, and yet God's love is not like their love. Yes, God's love is distinguishing, and yet he chooses to love and will never stop loving his people. He has a loyal chesed love. The next love is emotional. God's love is emotional. Sometimes people can imagine God as this big stoic, unmoving his face, except maybe anger. And yet, as we read this next passage from Hosea, tell me what his love feels like. Hosea 11, 7 through 9. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. But oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel for I am a God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you and I will not come to destroy That's definitely not like the God that we can imagine. He's far from passive and emotionless, but his love burns brightly in his heart, and it compels him to feel deeply about his people. See, but God's emotion goes beyond just merely feeling compassion for his broken people, but rather it also goes to the point of delight and pleasure. Did you know that If you are his child, that God likes you. God likes you. 
I remember the first time I heard that, I said, what? Yeah, God loves me. He's supposed to do that, right? But he doesn't like me. He is low-grade, always disapproving and disappointed in me. No, the Bible teaches us that God actually likes you, delights in you. Let let me give you two passages quickly to show you that. Psalm 149, verse 4. Would you say this? You need to hear this. You need to hear yourself say it. You need to hear other people say this over you. Say this out loud with me. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. One more, Zephaniah 3.17. Read this out loud with me. The Lord your God is in your midst. Is that how you view God's love? Like right now, if you were to imagine what he is like towards you, what his face is like towards you, do you see him smiling and singing over you, delighting in you like no one has ever delighted in you? Pleasure, taking pleasure in you. Do you understand what that word means, taking pleasure? That means that that person is causing pleasure in you, that God takes pleasure in you, his children. God's singing over you loudly. God's love is emotional. The next facet of God's love is that God's love requires wrath. What? I told you some of these won't make sense, but they're true. Why are you talking about wrath on a sermon on love? Let me share a quote from Michael Whitmer. Scripture says that God is love and that he has wrath. His love has wrath. This means that love lies deeper than wrath in the character of God. Love is his essential perfection, without which we would not be, he would not be who he is. Wrath is love's response to sin. It is God's voluntary gag reflex at anything that destroys his good creation. God is against sin because he is for us. And he will vent his fury on everything that damages us. God's love and wrath are not separate moods. But instead, his anger rises from his love. It's a response of his love. This means that God's anger at evil is a new thing that started in Genesis 3. God is not eternally wrathful. It's not an attribute. It's a response of his love. One author puts it this way, and I say one author because I forgot who it was, and I couldn't find it. In this sense, it's like, man, my notes are not good. God's anger is holy and set apart from human temper tantrums. From human temper tantrums. He loves his children in the world and therefore hates all evil present in it. In his love, he disciplines people to root out sin in them and free them from their captivity to it. Finally, in his love, he promises to destroy all evil as light destroys darkness. God's love requires wrath. In fact, if God is not wrathful, he is not loving. And that's very hard for us because wrath and love are mutually exclusive, typically in our mind. Wrath drives out love or love drives out wrath. But actually, in God, wrath is a response of true love. Next facet of God's love. God loves like the Father loves the Son. I wish I could have a whole sermon on this one right here. 
Jesus is in the garden. This is Genesis, uh, John 17. It's his high priestly prayer. And he's praying for his people. And he gives one of the reasons why God sent him. Listen carefully. What does Jesus want his people to know? Please, please hear this. If you're not leaning in, lean in now. This will change your life if you actually believe this. John 17, 23. Would you read this out loud? Loudly with me, if you can. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus is praying for them to be one. There's a lot to be said there. Jesus also wants them to know that God the Father sent Jesus. But what's the final thing? Jesus wants you and me to know that the Father loves you like he loves Jesus. How much does the Father love Jesus? I mean, can you imagine how much joy and delight and affection the Father has for his son? This eternal love that's always existed before the creation. The Father loves the Son, and now, as an overflow, the Father loves you like he loves Jesus. This is absurd. It's impossible, but true. The Father loves his people like he loves his Son. But we also see the love of the Son. Look at the next facet, like the Son for the Father. John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. (laughs) What? So like the Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves you like that. (laughs) You can bask in these truths for the rest of your life. As Michael Reeves likes to say, brush your teeth every morning with those words. The Father loves me like he loves Jesus. Jesus loves me like the Father loves the Son. Oh my goodness. I know some of you, your heart can't believe it. But it's true. And we'll talk about how you can believe it more. Before I get to the last facet of God's love, please know there's so many more. I couldn't get into the disciplining love of God, the protective love of God, the blessing love of God, and many, many more throughout the scriptures. But remember, I shared earlier, one of our biggest problems we have is that we like to tell God what his love should look like. We have a tragedy in our life. We experience a calamity in this world, and we say, God, if you're love, you wouldn't do that. But let me remind you of two simple facts. Two very self-evident facts that we tend to conveniently forget every day. One, you are not God. You are not God. And number two, you are not love. If you were God and you were love, you would understand why God does everything he does. All that he does would make complete sense in line with his divine love. But because you're not God and you're not love, sometimes it confuses us. And that's okay. They understand. We, we, We get that. God gets that. He's compassionate towards us to not get it. But, but what's not okay is for us to have an arrogant attitude to tell God how he should love or not. It's okay for us to be confused. That's fine. He gets that. Not okay for us to tell him how he should love. Track with me? Amen or oh me. 
So let us humble ourselves and let God tell us what his love is like and what his love should look like. But there's an even bigger problem with the love of God than just us redefining the love of God. It's what we have done with the love of God. Let me explain. I'm going to read a long quote from Michael Reeves. You will not be able to read it unless you're in the first three rows. This is what Michael Reeves says from his book, Delighting in the Trinity. Hopefully you got it. Made in the image of God, we are created to delight in harmonious relationship, to love God, to love each other. That is why we were created for. What then went wrong? It was not that Adam and Eve stopped loving. They were created as lovers in the image of God, and they could not undo that. Instead, their love turned. When the Apostle Paul writes of sinners, he describes them as lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, 2 Timothy 3. Lovers we remain, but twisted. Our love misdirected and perverted. Created to love God, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. So here's the big problem. We love the wrong things. And if we love the wrong person, what business do we have loving God forever in heaven? Hear this quote from the Puritan Christopher Love in the 1600s. If the Lord should bring a wicked man to heaven, heaven would be held to him. For he who loves not grace upon earth will never love it in heaven. Those who go to hell are those who reject a loving relationship with God. Instead of joining in the great love of the Trinity that was extended to us at great cost, they choose to love someone or something else. Popular culture can often grossly misrepresent Jesus' message like this. Love me or I'll send you to hell. Love me or I'll send you to hell. But when you think about hell is actually giving people what they want. They don't want a loving relationship with God forever. So they get what they want forever. So this is the great danger we are in. Every single person, without exception in this room, especially me, we've all rejected the love of God in different ways and are worthy and deserving of eternal separation from this loving relationship. And yet, the good news that we've said over and over again, that God is love. And so he relentlessly pursues us with his love. So let's look at the eighth, final facet of God's love that I'm highlighting in this sermon. It is sacrificial and demonstrable. Big words. John 3, 16, one of the most known verses of all the world. John 3, 16, for God, would you just say this with me? Because it's so good. Just speak it out loud. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love is not merely by word, like some of us have parents who say all these things, but they do not back it up with action, but it's a, word, it's a love that must act. And because his love burns hot for his people and for the world, he gave his only son, the one he loved, so that whoever, or other translations say, whosoever, are you a whosoever this morning believes in Jesus would not be separated from him eternally, but rather, rather join in this loving relationship, caught up in the love of the Trinity forever? That's heaven. What good news. And if you want that love and you are insecure, uncertain, you have that kind of love relationship with God, you are uncertain you will be with him forever, I would love to pray with you. That offer is real for you 
this morning if you want. I would love to pray with you about having entering into this love relationship. What does God want from people? Do you want morality? Does he want you to give money to church or do good things? Yeah, yeah, that's important. But what does God want from you? He wants you to enter into his love. That's why he created the world, to share his love with everyone who wants it. Now, I want to address those in here who want to grow in the love of God. See, there's a gap that we have to fight. In 2005, the Baylor Institute of Religion did a study, the number of people in America, and many Americans admit that they feel and believe that God is distant, angry, or critical. Distant, angry, critical. Sounds like some of our parents. Distant, angry, critical. And I bet if I would ask those same people, is God love? Many of them would give the right Sunday school answer. Yeah, God is love. But remember Tozer's quote that I shared. We're not talking about what you know intellectually, but what you know and believe in the innermost heart of hearts. What you actually feel to be true about God. I've been really helped by this group called the Eden Project, and they talk about the God of your gut. That all of us have a God of our mind, and we have a God of our gut. What we actually truly feel and believe God to be. So no matter what you say intellectually and verbally, your God, the God of your gut will over, always, always win. So if you say that God is love, but inside of your heart you feel like he's distant, cold, or angry, you're not going to pray. Or if you pray, you're going to do it always in terror and obligation and shame. What you're, the God of your gut tells you about God is going to be what is going to actually control your life and influence you. All of us here, and I mean it, every one of us here, have understandings about God that is actually different about what we feel to be true about God in our heart. And it varies. It's on a spectrum from person to person here. And the larger the gap, the larger the gap between what we say we believe about God and what we actually feel to be true about God, the larger the gap, the more dysfunction you're going to have in your relationship with God. The more struggle you have in the as you mature, part of the mature maturation process for the Christian discipleship process is bridging that gap where what you believe is true mentally, intellectually, and what you feel is true come together. You cannot neglect the heart. The heart will always win. So you have to bring those together. So how do we lessen that gap and grow in the love of God? Here are five ways, quickly. How to grow in the love of God. Number one, learn what is true. So the first step is in right thinking and feeling is that you actually have to have the right information about God, which means you actually have to know his word upside and down. You need to know this Bible more than you know anything else. You can't make up things about the love of God. You can't intuit things about the love of God. You would never imagine part of the love of God is his wrath. You wouldn't just imagine that. So you need God's revealed word to tell you, to tutor you in his love, what his love looks like. Hopefully this sermon took a step towards that. Number two, be real with where you're at. What do I mean by that? You, you cannot grow in the love of God if you are in denial about what you actually believe about the love of God. If you sense that in your heart of hearts you actually believe God is distant, critical, angry at you, then you won't be able to grow in the love of God because he can't relate with you truly unless you're real about where you're at. Listen, God is not angry if you feel that way about him. 
If you feel like he's angry at you, he's not angry at that. He gets it. He knows that you feel that way, and he's grieved that you feel that way. He doesn't want you to feel that way about his love. So just be honest about, God, this is where I'm at. There's a gap. I know that you're love according to the Bible, but I, I feel like I feel towards my dad and my mom. I feel rejected. I feel unloved. I feel neglected. You just be honest with them. Start there. And when you start there, you can actually start relating with God. Number three, let God love you. Many of us feel unworthy of love. In one sense, that is true. We have no business being loved like we are, but that does not change the fact that God has burning love towards you. Remember, he is like the sun, and he can't help but just shine on the earth, and we are like the earth. Sometimes we believe the lie that it is a noble thing to put ourselves in the penalty box and not receive his love, as if God's love for you is a chore and a burden for him that he would prefer you to actually be the more noble one and actually not receive his love like other people do and burden him with that. But he delights to give you love. Part of humility is receiving his love. It is a vulnerable thing to receive love from someone because you have to open up your heart. And if you've been hurt, wounded by other people's betrayal of their love for you, it's very hard to do that. But God is a love that you can trust. So open up your heart vulnerably and receive it. Rejecting the love of God because you think you're, too good, you're, you're not good enough for it is actually a subtle form of pride. So let God love you. He, he wants to love you. Receive the love of God. Number four, let others love you as an extension of God's love. Throughout the New Testament, we see this natural progression as the triune love overflows upon creation and his people. And Romans 5, verse 5, talks about the Holy Spirit, that God's love is poured out on us by the Holy Spirit. Then what happens? It pours out of us to other people. And as you receive the love of God through other people, you actually start to grow in the love of God. I've heard some people say, you're loving, they're like surrogate lovers for God, for you. And as you receive this surrogate love, from other people, you realize the source is from God. Recently, I sinned against my wife in a number of ways, and I start thinking to myself, will she still love me even though she sees more darkness in my heart than she hasn't seen before? Will she still love me? And guess what? Because God has radically transformed my wife with his radical love, she was able to lovingly forgive me. And guess what? In that moment, I was able to experience the smile and the loving kindness of God through her. So if you want to grow in the love of God, be deeply part of a community that loves each other. There's a number of visitors here. It doesn't have to be our church, but whatever it is, be deeply integrated into a church that does life together. Not merely comes on a Sunday or does a Bible study, but actually does life. Because in the context of doing life together and the messiness and everyday stuff of life, that's where you actually get to grow in giving love and receiving the love of God. And you cannot do that at a megachurch that you merely just attend. You can do that in some megachurches, but they're very hard to do it. So wherever you're at, give yourself fully to a community where you can grow in giving and receiving the love of God through others. Number five, final one, pray for a supernatural encounter with the love of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, what Sarah prayed, he's praying for a bunch of Christians who know about the love of God. They're Christians. They know God loves them, and yet they need power for something more. Read carefully. What do they need power for? Look at Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. Do you read this last one to read out loud? I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power 
So what do they need power for? They need power to understand, to receive, to comprehend, to experience the love of God. They already know the love of God. They already have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them because they're Christians. But there's a deeper experiential encounter with the love of God. And if you are, are, if you tend towards hyper-intellectualism and you feel like that's not spiritual or mature or that's for the hyper-charismatics out there, no, 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 this is God's word right here. Paul, Apostle Paul, is praying for you and me and we should pray for each other that we would encounter the love of God in a fresh experiential way. And to do that, you need strength from the Holy Spirit. This is not a mere knowledge that you can think hard or do enough Greek work to understand. You need the Holy Spirit, as Romans 5.5, to flood your hearts with the love of God. Because what does it say? We're trying to understand that which is not understandable. Literally says that. I want you to know that which you can't know. What? Well, that's not possible. Exactly. You need the Holy Spirit to give you power in your inner man to be able to comprehend this unfathomable love of God that's too high, too deep, too wide that you can't understand mentally. So I want to invite the worship band to come up. This love of God is something you grow into the rest of your life. You never exhaust the love of God. Just like you can't drink the entire ocean, you will never exhaust the love of God. I want, I want to welcome everyone, if you're willing, to vulnerably just close your eyes for a moment. I'm not trying to manipulate you or do anything, but it just helps us focus because you're finite and you can't focus on everything. So would you just close your eyes? And I want you to imagine God has a face, he does. And he's looking at you right now. What is his face like? What do you see on his face right now? What emotions can you see in the Father's face towards you right now? Ask right now, quickly, God, help me see what I believe and feel about your love towards me. What's his face like right now? Is it distant? Is it disappointed? Is it cold? Is it judgy? Is it angry? Is it delightful? Maybe it looks just like your parents when they're upset at you. Nothing is ever good enough to please them. Never enough. Is that what you feel and see in your heart of hearts about God towards you? Now I want you to receive this and it takes humility, remember? You need to humbly receive God's love. It's not, it takes vulnerability. Receive what is actually true, church. God approves of you through Jesus. God is more excited to see you than you are to see him. God is singing over you loudly with a smile. God delights in you. He's so proud of you. He's so pleased with you. And perhaps you retort and you say, that's not possible. You don't understand my my shame, my sin. It's not possible. Maybe for them, maybe for her or him, but not me. And hear back him say, hear the Father's words. He says, I know about it all. 
I actually know more about your sin than you do. You're blind to most of it. And yet, how can I give you up? How could I give you up? I died for you. My compassion grows warm within me. My love is loyal to you. I have chesed towards you. Hear the Father say to your heart, I love you like I love my son Jesus. Hear Jesus then speak up and speak to your heart, I love you like the Father loves me. Enter our love. I want to pray Ephesians 3 over you. Father of glory, I pray out of the glorious, abundant riches that you would strengthen our hearts with power by your Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts experientially through faith. And I pray that you would root my church to be rooted and grounded and established in your love, that you would grant us power together with all of God's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that you would grant us this power to know the love that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Oh Lord, would you just fill our hearts, flood our hearts with the love of God. I want to invite you to give your life to praying that prayer as much as you can. Never being content with where you're at, but wanting more and more of the love of God because he wants you to have more and more of his love. He's glad to give it. He's got more where that came from. Got two prompts for you this week. On the screen, please pray with your DNA next time you meet your DNA group. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Lay hands on each other and pray that prayer over your group. Pray that prayer over your family. Pray that prayer over your church. And then would you please pray, share with your DNA group ways God is showing his love to you afresh and ways your heart is still struggling to receive and believe his love. And so now in this space, I just want to welcome you to sing or get on your knees or ask someone to pray for you if you feel stuck, you feel too much shame, you don't believe God would love you. Whatever you need to do to respond.